And I love, I love this new pre-dawn bowling league that I'm in. I get to just, <laughs> since someone mocked my shirt the last time I wore it, <laughs> it's not a bowling shirt. I don't bowl. <laughs> We're uh, continuing our series called Little Big Things. And uh, this morning, I'm particularly excited and a little bit anxious about the message too. And I said this in the first service as well. And the reason is this. I really believe in the depths of my being that for some of you in here today, this is a very, very unique time. Uh, you're going you're gonna to know that God is speaking to you by name. You're, you're going to know that this is a potential uh, breakthrough moment in your life. And it's not going to feel that comfortable. But you'll at least know that God came very close, very personally close to you today and is offering you something that you've frankly been wanting for a long time, but you're not going to like doing what he's going to call you to do. So let me start by describing who you are so you can recognize yourself. Uh, you're someone that you live with more or less discomfort every day of your life. It's hard to be you. you. You've got a certain condition. You've got a certain set of issues. You, you've got some dis-ease inside. There's something that just affects you so deeply that it sort of makes you feel like this. You have this one thing, this one issue, this one struggle. It's the one thing that ruins everything doesn't really matter what your circumstances are. You can't really enjoy them for long in any case because this one thing, this endless struggle you have, this discomfort, this disease that is going on inside you that makes you feel like a misfit, that makes you feel like you don't connect, that you don't belong, that people are always looking at you with perhaps an eye to criticize you or reject you or find you deficient. This thing haunts you. This thing torments you. You have it all the time. It's the one thing, this one thing, if you could just get rid of it, it's the one thing that ruins everything. Secondly, it sabotages the health, your health, your inner health, your development, your Christ-like transformation. It, you're two steps forward and three steps back, two steps forward and three steps back. It sabotages your development and it steals your peace. You don't really have much peace, truth be told. Now, here's the ironic thing about it, and this is the part that you're probably going to find a little bit irritating. Here it is. It could be very easily resolved. This thing that ruins everything, that sabotages your inner health, your Christ-like character development, and robs you of peace, truth be told, it's a little thing that you would need to do to resolve it. And it's something you can do. It's something that's doable. And God wants to coerce you gently to do it today. It could be very easily resolved. And finally, it's not what we expect or, what does it say? What we want to do. You're, you're going to find that what God is going to ask you to do to resolve this, this very little step that you can take, this thing that's doable, you're going to find it's not at all what you would expect that would be necessary 
to alleviate this condition, this struggle, this disease, this discomfort inside you. You're, you're, you're going to think like, no, that doesn't make sense. I don't see how that connects. And you're not going to want to do, when you hear what God's going to ask you to do to have this breakthrough, you're not going to want to do it. So let's go on and look at this message from its core. We're going to turn back in the Old Testament to the place where we were at last week. You remember we were in 2 Kings last week, chapter 4. We're going to be in 2 Kings, chapter 5. I kind of gave you the whole historical. Go ahead and turn there. It's page 409. I gave you the whole historical context last week. It takes place in about 868 B.C. That is about 868 years before Christ was born, almost 2,900 years ago from where we're at. And it centers um, in the northern kingdom of Israel, King Jehoram, the son of Ahab, is king, and Elisha, the prophet, whose ministry lasts for 70 years, he's on the scene, and we saw him last week. We're going to see him again this week. So we're going to read the first 19 verses, and I'll be pausing a bit as we, uh, as we go through it and making some comments, and then we'll get a little bit more serious about applying it in a deeper way. Here we go. Chapter 5 of 2 Kings, page 409, verse 1. It says, Now Naaman, the commander of the king of Assyria's army, was esteemed and respected by his master, for through him the Lord had given Syria military victories. But, so, so far it sounds really good to be Naaman. Naaman, the commander of the king of Syria's army, very respected, wins victories, but this great warrior had a, and in our NET version it says skin disease. But let me show you how in our same Bible that we're looking at in the New Testament, words from Jesus, Jesus defines this skin disease. I'm reading from Luke chapter 4, verse 27. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, yet none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. So here Jesus says this skin disease was leprosy. There's some uh, you know, discrepancy about were all the skin diseases in the biblical uh, context were they all leprosy. Uh, some probably were, some probably were not. Anyway, Jesus defines it. So Naaman is a great, highly respected commander, but he is a leper. Verse 2. Raiding parties went out from Syria and took captive from the land of Israel a young girl who became a servant to Naaman's wife. She told her mistress, if only my master were in the presence of the prophet who is in Samaria, then he would cure him of his skin disease slash leprosy. Naaman went and told his master what the girl from the land of Israel had said. The king of Syria, that would have been Ben-Hadad too, the king of Syria said, go and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. That would have been Jehoram, the ninth king of the northern kingdom. So Naaman went, taking with him ten talents of silver. That would have been 750 pounds of silver, equal to about $132,000 a day. And ten, uh, excuse me, and 6,000 shekels of gold. That would have been about 150 pounds of gold. That would have been nearly $3 million worth of gold a day. And ten suits of clothes, I have no idea how much they would be worth. <laughs> Depends on what store you shop from. <laughs> He brought the letter to the king of Israel, and it read, This is a letter of introduction for my servant Naaman, whom I have sent to be cured of his skin disease slash leprosy. 
When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and he said, Am I God? Can I kill or restore life? Why does he ask me to cure a man of his skin disease slash leprosy? Certainly you must see that he is looking for an excuse to fight me. When Elisha the prophet heard that the king had torn his clothes, he sent this message to the king. Why did you tear your clothes? Send him to me so he may know there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots, and he stood in the doorway of Elisha's house. Elisha sent out a messenger who told him, Go and wash seven times in the Jordan. Your skin will be restored, and you will be healed. Pause. So now he gets these instructions on what the prophet of God, the one that God is speaking to and the one who God is speaking to tells him is the course for his healing. He's been hopeless to this point and he's told, dip yourself in the Jordan River seven times. Look at his reaction in verse 11. It says, Naaman went away how? Angry. He is ticked at this. He said, look, I thought for sure. Notice he has expectations about how God's going to work in his life. He has expectations in his mind about how God's going to heal him. What methodology? He says, look, I thought for sure he would come out and stand there, invoke the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the area, and cure the skin disease slash leprosy. So he had a certain expectation of how God had to heal him, had to work in his life. The rivers of Damascus... The Abana and Farpar are better than any of the waters in Israel. Could I not wash in them and be healed? So he turned around and he went away angry. You know, it would be very sad if the story ended there. He would have left. He would have been in just as much discomfort, just as much dis-ease. And he would have lived with that horrible feeling of never fitting in, of always being deficient, of not being able to connect, of always having something wrong, of never feeling as good as he would like to feel about himself, and on we could go. But he, but he doesn't. It doesn't end there. Verse 14. Uh, excuse me, verse 13. His servants approached him and said, Oh, master, if the prophet had told you to do something or do some difficult task, you would have been willing to do it. It seems you should be happy that he simply said, wash and you will be healed. Now look at his reaction. Now mind you, this guy's a very prominent, prestigious individual. And his servants are telling him, hey, why don't you just do what the prophet said? It's not like he asked you to do something you can't do. You can do this. It's doable. You just don't want to do it. You just think it's humiliating. You're just frustrated because you pictured God dealing with you in a different way than God is, in fact, going to deal with you. And what I find wonderful about Naaman, and I'm going to backtrack just a little bit, he listened. You'll see that he listens to his servants now, and he listened, first of all, to that Jewish slave girl that had been captured in battle by the Syrians. It's an interesting thing to me that he seems to treat that Jewish slave girl with great respect when she tells him, oh, my master, there's a prophet in Israel who can heal your skin disease slash leprosy. He listens to her. 
He, he takes the risk to go to his king. And here's another interesting thing. It might seem like a little thing that this Israelite girl who had her life stolen from her, she becomes a captive, a slave in the household of Naaman and his wife, it says. It might seem like a little thing that she goes to her master's wife and says, you know, your husband, Naaman, our ma my master can be healed if he goes to Israel. Well, you know, why wasn't she angry at God for allowing her life to be stolen from her? Well, more, why wasn't she angry at Naaman and his wife? Why wasn't she glad that he had leprosy? Why wasn't she thinking to herself, you deserve the leprosy, you jerk, you, told, you tore my life away from me, and I hope your wife gets it too. <laughs> but she didn't. It wasn't, it seemed like a little thing that she liked her masters and were serving them with a kind and an open heart. But I think it was because Naaman and his wife both were, were kind and respectful to her. And we see Naaman, once again, when he's right in a stage of anger, hard to go from anger. You know, your pride gets ratcheted up. You're going to protect your dignity. You're going to get a little stubborn. It's very hard to go from that to let your servant talk to you and tell you what to do as others are listening. Very humiliating context. But let's look at his reaction. Verse 14, so he went down and he dipped in the Jordan seven times. And as the prophet had instructed, his skin became as smooth as a young child's and he was healed. He listens to his servants and he does what the prophet had asked him to do. Verse 15, he and his entire entourage returned to the prophet Naaman came and stood before him and he said, For sure I know there is no God in all the earth except Israel. This was an enormous statement. In those days, there were multiple gods and goddesses, and now he has had a clear experience with the true God, and he knows there's only one true God. This man is converted. His entire life is turned around. For sure, I know there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now, please accept a gift from your servant. But Elisha replied, as certainly as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will take nothing from you. Naaman insisted that he take it, but he refused. Elisha did not want Naaman to think that the true God was a God that had to be bought or appeased. He wanted him to know that the true God is loving and good and generous and kind and delights in doing good to others. He didn't want there to be any confusion into his mind. The gods and goddesses of those false uh, cults that he was familiar with, they always wanted something to appease them. Verse 17, it says, Naaman said, if then not, please, rather weird request coming, Naaman said, if not, then please give your servant a load of dirt, <laughs> enough for a pair of mules to carry off, for your servant will never again offer a burnt offering or sacrifice to a God other than the Lord. His thought here is that he now knows that Israel really is holy ground. That it's only the God of Israel that is the true creator of heaven and earth. And he's so moved, he wants to take dirt from Israel back to his own land so that he can kneel upon it. He can have proximity and closeness to the place where the real God is revealing himself and working. And he wants to forever remember this experience he's had with the living God. Let's pick back up in verse 18. Now he's a little embarrassed about part of his duties back home. He says, may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. 
When my master enters the temple of Rimmon to worship, and he leans on my arm, and I bow down in the temple of Rimmon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. And Elisha said to him, go in peace. He's saying, look, my, my, my master, the king, Ben-Hadad, too, he, he's, a little, he's a little shaky these days. He's a little older. And when he goes to worship his false god, Rimmon, I, I have to sturdy him, and I'm forced to bow down with him. Is, is that okay? Can I be forgiven for that? And Elisha says, go in peace. Now, I want you to see what happened. This guy goes from having a condition, a struggle, an issue that was ruining his entire life, that no matter what else good was going on, he couldn't enjoy his life because it was too hard to be him. He always felt disconnected. He always felt division. He went from that to being healed, to being transformed. It says his skin became like that of a child. That transformation is symbolic of the, the kind of character transformation God now wants to make in us, helping us to truly become like Christ instead of two steps forward and three steps back. And then it says he goes in peace. So he received, he received quickly healing, transformation, and peace, all because he was willing to do something that he didn't want to do. Remember when he was first told what he had to do, dip himself seven times in the Jordan River, he's ticked, he's angry. This was humiliating. The rivers of, of Syria were far better. He was going to look like a fool if nothing happened. He, him dipping in the water and coming out as plagued as he was before. He didn't want to do it. He didn't like doing it. But when he did what God told him to do, even though it seemed terribly disconnected, he experienced exactly what he always wanted. Some of you, you've been wanting desperately to feel different. You've been wanting desperately to stop the pain, the discomfort, the dis-ease inside. You, you've been wanting so much to see real Christ-like character development take place but the truth is you've been taking two steps forward and three steps back two steps forward and three steps back it's not happening for you you had a a thought process you had a way that you expected God to work Naaman had a way he expected God to send the prophet and he would you know announce the name of the Lord and wave his hand over the the area that was infected and you've probably had a way. You thought, you know, I'm going to immerse myself in God's word, and I'm going to read Christian books, and I'm going to go to church every Sunday, and maybe I'm going to serve. And, but you had, you had a process, and you just, you just thought, that's the way God's going to heal me. That's the way he's going to transform me and make me more like Christ. That's the way I'm going to find peace. But if you're honest with yourself, it hasn't happened. It's just not working. And now, God, the same God that was there with Naaman, is coming close, very close to you. And he's getting real personal to the point where he could whisper in your ear, I really want to do something different in your life. I really want to bring healing to you. I really want to bring transformation. I really want to bring peace. But I'm going to ask you to do something and you're not going to like it. And it's not even going to make sense to you. And you're going to be tempted to get angry. 
and to dismiss it altogether. But if you don't, if you'll humble yourself, if you'll open yourself, you'll be shocked at the breakthrough that will come to you. That's what God's saying to some of us very personally today. So I'm going to reverse the order of this message. The, the way the message would normally flow is, well, what would God want done? And then the second part of the message would be, why would God want this done? In fact, I'm going to start with, why would God want this done? Why? You recall that in a message series back, I shared this truth with you. That mankind, humanity, has a big problem. The big problem is distrust in God that produces disobedience to his will. Naaman distrusted God, didn't know God's will, didn't do God's will. More than his physical healing, he needed to come to a place of trust in God. And so that's the why behind the what. Why God wanted him to take this unusual journey, this unusual step of faith. Let me go on with this. We talked about the solution to the problem. God's willingness to patiently, consistently, and gently reveal himself to demonstrate his trustworthiness and mankind coming to authentic convictions that sin is always ultimately destructive. Until we really, really believe that God is trustworthy, until we really believe that all sin is ultimately our enemy and destructive to us, we won't receive the healing that God wants us to experience. So that was God's why behind the what. He wanted Naaman to know that healing comes from trusting in God and trusting in his word and living in accord with his word and his will, even when it doesn't make sense initially what it is he's asking us to do. Here's some New Testament verses that kind of reinforce this concept. Excuse me, Old Testament verse. In Deuteronomy 5.29, the Lord is speaking. He says, but I wish... I wish they would always have respect for me in their hearts. And I wish they would always do what? Obey. Obey. How many of my commands? All. all my commands. So here's, I wish they would always obey all. Those are big statements. Always obey all my commands. Always. Why, God? Why do you want us to obey you always? Then things will, would go what? Well. well. Things would go well with them and their children forever. God's not arbitrary. He doesn't just want us to obey because he likes the feeling of power and control. He knows what is best. He knows how he built us. He knows how he designed us. He knows what will bring wholeness and wellness, and he wants us to really trust him. And the evidence will be is that we obey him, all his commands, always, because that's the evidence of real trust. Here again in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah 48, 17, he says, I am the Lord your God, the one who wants, who wants to teach you for your what? Own good. He loves us. He knows what's best and wants what's best. I'm the one that wants to teach you for your own good and direct you in the way you should go. It goes on. If only, if only you had paid attention to my commands, your what? Your peace would have been like a river. Your well-being, that's best life ever, if you want to look at it from that angle. Your well-being, best life ever, like the waves of the sea. It would have just gotten better each year of your life, each decade of your life would have got better. That's if, if we trust God enough to immerse ourselves in his word and then live it out. Now, the truth of the matter is, <laughs> sometimes... I don't, you don't, like to do what we know 
is actually good for us. Right? How many of you in here love to floss? Can I see your hands? You, you love to floss. There, there is one or two. There always is. <laughs> the rest of us, not so much. We, we kind of wish this were true. The U.S. Health Department says we don't have to floss. <laughs> well, we don't have to. But this next guy knows it's good for us. <laughs> so did you know this little factoid? Flossing can add 6.4 years to your life, says Dr. Michael Royzen in his book, The Real Age Makeover. Now, you just said, and I just said, we don't like flossing, but we all floss, right? You do floss, and if you don't, you're going to start now. It'll add six and a half years to your life. <laughs> so we don't always do what we know we should do, what we know is good. Sometimes we just don't like it, even though we know it's good. For, for example... How many of you love, you just can't wait, you, you anticipate it with joy going to the dentist? I'm into dental stuff this morning. How many of you just love going to the dentist? Can I see your hand? No, no, that's, most people don't. You're weird. <laughs> Actually, I don't mind going to the dentist. I fall asleep in the dentist chair. I really do. I don't know why. But most people feel like this. They feel like that's what, what it's like to go to the dentist, you know? And we avoid it if we could, even though we know it's good for us. We, we don't want to go to the dentist unless, unless we wake up with a toothache. How many of you have ever had a toothache? Let me see your hands. You get a toothache, and if you get a toothache and you wake up in the morning with a toothache and you look like this guy, like that right there, all you want to do is go to the dentist. Now, normally, you don't want to go to the dentist. At least most of us don't want to go to the dentist. But when you have a toothache and you wake up looking like that, you want no one so bad as you want the dentist. What are you getting at, Randy? Well, it was this man's pain that caused him to make this extraordinary journey and take this extravagant risk of being humiliated. It was his pain. And a loving God is saying to some of us in here, You've lived with this pain for a long time. You've maybe convinced yourself you'll never get over it. It'll never go away for you. And he's going to ask you to go somewhere you don't want to go and to do something you don't want to do. And it's not going to make sense to you. You're not going to see it connects. You're going to be angry. You're going to be irritated that he even asks you to do it, and yet it's the key. It's the, the only way that the healing you want and God wants can come together and happen. So let's go to that part that should have been the first part of the message. What would God want done? We know what he wanted Naaman to do. He wanted him to dip in the Jordan River, the inferior Jordan River, seven times. That's it. That's all he wanted him to do. But he doesn't want you or I to dip in the Jordan River, but what does he want us to do that's little? It's a little thing. It's a thing we can do. It's doable. It doesn't seem connected at all, and yet it's the only way that the healing, the transformation, and the peace that we want is ever going to become an actual experience in our life. So what might it be? Now, I'm going to forewarn you, this is going to get very uncomfortable, okay? 
And some of you are going to be tempted, frankly, to be angry at me. And that's okay. Let's read some verses that prepare us for where we're going. Here's Jesus, the last night of his life, speaking to his disciples then and we that are his now. He says, the one who loves me is the one who, two, two conditions, is the one who has what? My has my teaching and what else? Obey. It's not enough just to have it. You can, you can study the Bible for the rest of your life and have a head full of Bible knowledge, but unless we are putting it into practice, Jesus says we can say we love him, we can wave our hands and shed tears when a good song's playing and say how much we love him, but unless we're immersing ourselves in his teaching and obeying it, our love is bogus, according to Jesus. Jesus says, the one who loves me is the one who has my teaching. We've got to get it into ourselves and obeys it. Let's look again at another angle. 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, true love for God, what, is it, what does it look like? What does true love for God look like? True love for God means, you tell me. That's pretty clear. True love for God means obeying his commands. And his commands don't weigh us down as heavy burdens. Here's another. Jesus, in that last night that he was with his disciples, after he talked to them about obedience and, and other things, he said, these things I've spoken to you, that my joy, he knew he was going to the cross within hours, my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be what? God wants us to obey so that we can have fullness of joy. And one last one from Hebrews 5, 9. It says, he, meaning Jesus, after he had finished his work, his work of revealing the heart of God, particularly the sacrificial heart of God as he went to the cross in the ultimate evidence of his trustworthiness for us. After he had finished his work, he became the source of eternal salvation. We all want eternal salvation for everyone who what? Oh, man, that, that doesn't sound like what I was told, Randy. I, I was told all i got to do is pray the sinner's prayer, and I have eternal salvation. Oh, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I, Randy, I was told all I had to do was ask Jesus into my heart, and that's it, man, and I'm good to go for eternity. Folks, we better be sure that what we are calling a relationship with Christ is based on Scripture and not on silly sayings that you hear in churches. You, you see, if I've truly returned to Christ my creator and trust, the evidence will be I will want to know his will and I will want to do his will. That's why it says he's the author of eternal salvation for everyone who does what together? Obeys him. Trust, faith shows itself in obedience. So we know that it's not just about knowing what God says. Listen, Naaman knew what God wanted him to do. He knew he wanted him to dip in the Jordan River seven times. But if he had not dipped in that Jordan River, his healing would not have come. His transformation would not have come. His peace would not have come. It's not just knowing God's will. It's not just being familiar with his word. It's not just being able to quote it. It is about obeying it before powerful things happen. It's going to get uncomfortable. What might your Jordan River be? Might your Jordan River, and you're going you're gonna to be irritated at this, just like Naaman was irritated, and you're going to be frustrated. You, you can't see the connection. You might even be thinking, I, I dare him even bring this up. What if your dip in the Jordan River was that God, a loving God, is telling you, you have got to deal with your bitterness. You have 
rationalized it. You've legitimized it. You've held on to it. Your bitterness, your grudging, your malice and ill will. You, you, you secretly want to see bad things happen to people. And what you don't know is like a poison toxic. It's keeping you in a state of dis-ease or disease. And your dip in the Jordan River is you've got to deal with it fully and finally. What, what if your dip in the Jordan River is God's telling some of you, you've got to deal finally and fully with your anger and your rage and your outbursts. You can't justify them anymore. You can't legitimize them. You can't excuse them unless you want to stay in your sickened condition. You've got to deal with it. What if God said to some of us, you got to deal with your greed. You say, what do you mean greed? I'm random. I just want what everybody else wants. No, God's saying you got to deal with your greed. You see, you still believe that unless you have a certain sort of lifestyle, a certain amount of money, a certain kind of things, being able to go certain places, and you feel like that the quality of your life is dependent upon your financial resources, and God is telling some of you, you're going to stay sick and insecure and unsatisfied until you deal with your greed, and God's going to say you need to tithe. You say, Randy, what's tithe? That sounds like a washing product. <laughs> no, God told his people right from the start in the Old Testament all the way through the New that he wanted to teach us how to be generous by telling us give the first 10% of our income to him and learn to live off the nine-tenths. And some of you are hearing that now and you're just furious that I would even bring it up, but it's God's word. And some of you are going to stay in disease until you start to trust God with your finances and then you'll find peace, and you'll find that your life does not consist of the abundance of things that you possess, just like Jesus said. Some of you, he's telling you, you've got to, you got to deal with your filthy mouth, with your filthy jokes, with your vulgar expressions, with your outburst of profanity. You minimize them. You say it's just words. It doesn't matter. But Jesus says, from the abundance of a person's heart does their mouth speak. You've got a profane heart if you've got profane words coming out of your mouth. And Jesus is saying, I can't heal you unless you deal with this. This is bigger than you think is what he's saying. You've minimized it. You've come up with reasons for it. But he's saying if you want to get healthy, if you want to get whole, you've got to deal with it. For some of us, he might be saying, you're going to hate this one. I'll probably lose half the church on this one. You need to submit. He's telling some kids, you need to submit to your parents as unto the Lord. He's telling wives. This is from God's word. This is from Ephesians 5. Wives, submit to your husbands as you would submit to the Lord. That's in the Bible. That's God's word. You say, but Randy, my husband is a moron. <laughs> I think God knows that. <laughs> and then, of course, he's saying to husbands, some of us, the thing that's keeping us sick and diseased, you've got to learn to love your wife sacrificially. 
just like I love the church. That's God's word too. He's telling some of us, he's saying you gotta lose the arrogance. You gotta lose the arrogance and the stubbornness. You're gonna stay sick. You're never gonna grow. You're never gonna have peace until you become humble and teachable and own and then finally get rid of the arrogance and the stubbornness. He's telling some of us, you have got to stop the whining and complaining and griping and grumbling. You've got to knock off this notion that you're entitled to a smooth ride, everything you want, how you want it, when you want it. He's saying unless you let go of your complaining attitude, you're going to stay sick. You're going to stay you're going to stay tortured. You're never going to be satisfied. He's telling some of us what he says in his word. Until you learn to be content with what you have, you'll never be content. And you don't want to hear that. You're angry that I even said that. He's telling some of us, you've got to stop the sexual sin. And we're saying, why should I have to stop it? Even the bachelorette has sexual sin. She thinks it's fine. It's a new day, Randy. You don't have to listen. But until some of us that know we are in sexual sin stop it, no health, no peace, no growth, no development. If some of us, he's saying, until we own and stop the prejudice No health, no growth. As some of us, he's saying, until we stop the duplicity, we're like multiple personality people. We're one thing in one place and another person in another place, and we think that's fine with God. We're one person in our place of business and another person in our church. And God's saying, you have to be who you are. Now, I could go on and on, but I just want to give this as a suggestive list after 40-some years of working with people, scrounging around in my own soul. I think the things I've mentioned are pretty typical, and I think that they're likely to be some of the dips in the Jordan River that God's asking us. And I know some of you are sitting there now. You're thinking, fuming mad at me. You're, you're thinking of all the reasons why what I said is stupid and nonsensical, and you're irritated just like Naaman was irritated. And you can't see any connection with your personal problems and issues. And this dip in the Jordan River that I'm suggesting. But I know God's speaking to you. Because it all comes from his word, everything I've said. And I'm not speaking down to you because I'm you. I have every struggle that you have. We're all in this together. And a loving God is calling all of us toward health. He's not condemning us. He doesn't want us feeling bad Quite the opposite, he wants us to feel his joy, but we can't, he can't give it to us until we deal with some of these issues. So let me conclude with three statements. God's will may not always align with our expectations. We might expect that we're going to get healthy and grow by a certain means, but just like Naaman expected God to work in one way. God has decided to work in another way. God's will may not always align with our expectations. Number two, distrust-driven disobedience deprives us of God's best. Some of us have fought for our right to be disobedient. We have, we have said stupid things like, well, nobody's perfect. 
so you're hurting, you're shooting yourself in the foot. You want a right to shoot, you keep shooting yourself in the foot, go ahead. But it's going to hurt. We only hurt ourselves. Distrust-driven disobedience deprives us of God's best. It doesn't deprive us of his love, it deprives us of his best. Number three, obeying God is the fast track to our highest good. It was when Naaman finally put aside his pride, got down into the inferior waters of the Jordan, dipped up and down seven times, completely feeling like a fool, I'm sure, wondering what the heck is this going to have, have effect on me? How is this ever going to heal my leprosy that he finally got healed, transformed, and ultimately goes home with peace? The fastest track to the best life ever. The fastest track to the joy that we all want, the peace we all want, the transformation we all want, the healing we think is impossible but desperately want. It's in obeying God's word. Even that word that you heard today that you don't like, that you can't connect, that you're mad at right now. So, it was a small thing for Naaman to listen to the slave girl. It was a small thing for her to be nice to him. It was a small thing for Naaman when he was angry to listen to his servants. And it was a really small, doable thing for him to walk over to that inferior Jordan River and dip himself seven times, humiliate, humble himself to do what God told him to do. You've been told some things that you know God says in his word for us to do or one of those little things that you know need to be done can be done is that what's holding back all this time is that what's impeding is that what's blocking your healing your actual Christ-like character development and your peace if you'll do if you'll do the little thing that you can do this is what happens. The results will be disproportionately big all through your life, all through every relationship. Now, I'm telling you, you know it, you're feeling it. The Spirit of God is here ready to do something big and dramatic. But he's going to ask you to deal with something you don't want to deal with. But if you do, you'll never regret it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for moments like this that your spirit and power draws near to bring healing to our hearts, transformation to our lives, and peace to our souls. Give us the courage and the humility to do the little thing that we now know we should and can do. I ask it in Christ's name. Amen.